Before the episode, we wanted to let you know about Essential Tremors Presents, a new monthly series we're starting at Fadenzonen in the old Goucher neighborhood. We'll be hosting live music, album listening parties, and live episode tapings. You can get more information by clicking on the Essential Tremors Presents link at EssentialPodcast.com. Now, on to the episode. This is when I really figured out that this is what I want to do with my life was was this very moment when this record came out and it was and it's it it's just the ultimate life-changing musical moment for me in my in my life absolutely this is essential tremors i'm lee gardner i'm matt byers The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs, necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives, or their lives in general. week's episode, even in the face of band member resignations and reduction to just two of their original four members, Battles continues to thrive, making sounds that marry the analog and the digital, the manual and the automatic, all in a way that's unlike any other music currently being made. Despite complex electronic arrangements, at the heart of Battle Sound is a powerful human force, drummer John Stanier. Formerly of alt-metal band Helmet, in which he redefined rock drumming for the early 90s, Stanier has again reinvented the role of drums in contemporary music through his playing in this hyper-modern, forward-thinking, and dazzlingly complex band. The first song Stanier chose as being highly influential to him was Heart of the Sunrise by Yes.
reason that I picked Heart of the Sunrise is because if I'm supposed to be talking about songs that made me maybe made me want to be a musician or maybe start to think about it or something this is one of the earliest memories I have is listening to this record my parents had it they played it all the time it was pretty much one of the only rock records that they played um, they're ex- definitely exclusively jazz only all the time um, so this was this like really it just it for, you know it stuck out because like I just said it was the first rock record and it had like this really crazy organ on it and and uh, it was just really really different from everything else that they were constantly playing which was like Coltrane and stuff like that and Archie Shep and really out there saxophone stuff um so this was one of the first this probably is the first rock record i ever heard i think it's from like 1970 70 69 71 something like that um it's it's one of the earliest memories and of course it's uh it made me just immediately um drew me to the sound of the drums um they were completely different than jazz drumming um even though bill bruford is a little like you know a little on the jazzy jazzy tip um but just everything about this record i i love and especially this song it's my favorite song on the record but it's like every, all the sounds the way that the drums sound um and it really really made a massive impact on me at such a young age that i didn't even really know i mean i was three two uh, whatever year it came out um, so that's pretty young to be um, and like I, they, they played it a lot so it, it was just a, such a, a, a light bulb going off in my little tiny head how do you suppose that that record got into your parents exclusively jazz collection that is a very good question I have no idea I mean they had okay they they had well actually they really didn't have that much they had it was like the beatles i think crosby stills nash and young and then yeah the yes record fragile it was the only yes record that they had and i didn't even i didn't know anything in fact i thought for the longest time i thought the band was called fragile <laughs> and the album was called yes because on the cover you know, it's the the, the epic um, Roger Dean um, uh, painting, and it's you know it's fragile. Yes, so uh, I didn't know anything about them. I still ha- I'm looking at it right now. I still have it, and it still has like the original insert in it with the really trippy art. And I would just sit there and stare at the at the insert and listen to the record over and over and over again for quite some time. I was going to ask because I think that that's something that, you know, uh, music nerds, you know, maybe everybody does this, but, you know, music nerds definitely do this, you know, when you're a kid and especially if you were, you know, you're old enough to have been around for LPs when you were a kid and just like looking at this thing and taking in every detail and trying to decipher it like it was a message from some other world. you know. Yeah. I mean, I still do that. In fact, I, I have... Um whenever I I'm just such a vinyl maniac still. Um, and I DJ a lot and I've made the switch over to the USB stick 
DJing on CDJs, and for some reason that makes me that made me even buy more vinyl now. So it's I'm totally out of control. But I mean, I even like will I hate price tags, so I'll like meticulously I'll take like the lighter on really old records to like just get the price tag off where it doesn't rip some of the artwork off. And yeah, I still do that constantly. I love the really older like this this record too has the um the inside sleeve is just advertisements of all the other records that are on the label that are out like right in the year when this record came out and it's pretty incredible it's like the woodstock record and the road underground loaded and so this was like at a really really cool time in music so you heard this pretty young and you know it had a big impact on you clearly at what point did you actually start moving toward playing music yourself um i honestly don't remember i mean i was banging banging on pots and pans and all that and then my parents bought me a um like a, a baby toy tin drum set which i had for quite a long time um so around this time really I think, um, and um, I don't know if I, I, I don't remember if I knew that I wanted to play drums when I first heard this, but um, I, maybe maybe subliminally, this really was the record that planted the seed in my head. And it's just, I mean, the song that I chose is like, it's definitely the trippiest song on the record. It's the last song. It, it, it closes this epic um, I th- and I feel like Fragile is really the, this is the record that they really found themselves. Um, I think it's bigger than the record before that because it says Roundabout and stuff. So this was a huge record. Um, super pretentious. Um, it has everything. <laughs> I went back, I hadn't heard it in a long time and I went back and, and listened to it um, just to sort of get ready to talk to you. And had kind of forgotten that it's kind of aggro a little bit there yeah. at the first, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and sporadically throughout, which is not necessarily the the image that that yes carries. Yeah, I think people forget that yes really started out as like a blues kind of like a warped blues band, which I guess all rock at that time was like that's when the blues was like just huge. So we're gonna add elements of that, but yeah, for sure, it's like it's actual rock. It's, um, um, it's, it, they can get pretty hard. So, but they're also really funky. It's super psychedelic. Um, you know, like I said, they kind of have everything and it's, it's not something that I could listen to all day long either. Even to this day, it's, it's, you know, it's taxing music to listen, listen to. And some of their other records are just almost unlistenable, like tales from topographic oceans and stuff like that. But this is a little more mainstream. It had some, you know, some some uh, FM radio songs or song, I guess, roundabout. Um, so this is a little easier to uh, on the palate, I think. But but uh, yeah, it it it's all over the place. I love it. I was going to say that you know, in your musical career you've developed a certain reputation i think and you know for being you know someone who you know hits hard and 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 plays with a lot of force and 
um, I wouldn't say is is uh, simple because you're doing a lot of different things, mm. but it's not necessarily a style that I would have connected with, like you know, having a prog uh, moment in your upbringing, your musical upbringing. Um, I think that I, you know, yeah, I definitely grew up on. I, I was an absolute prog rock nerd in um like junior high school in the very beginning of high school but at the same time i also marched um in drum corps so i have this like really precision based way of playing um and uh so i kind of combined the two and then throwing on top of that like i'm also a big led zeppelin fan so um and i really like hitting hard to me is like important I think and like putting your whole body into it um, so it's really the combination of all of those things and I, I've, I've always wanted to be to have the perfect balance between precision like meticulous precision and brute force um, which don't often go hand in hand so you know that was that was kind of a goal I guess I a goal is the wrong word but that's just it just happens somehow that that became kind of my the, the path I went down. The second song chosen by Stanier was Free Will by Rush. My second song is a, a no-brainer for me. Um, that's really, this is after many years after Yes. Um, and this is um, by my all-time favorite band, most influential band, hands down. And pretty much the, the reason I'm playing music is Rush. It's from Rush. So, And it's the song Free Will which is from my favorite record, Permanent Waves, which is when I feel like they really, they, that's when they really figured it out. And that's when they were like ready for just world domination. It's right around this time. And you can just, you can smell it. It's just like, wow, that they're, they're ready. Like, I mean, they were already huge, but um, at this point, but it's, um, and it's also, 
to me, it's um, each one of their records before that. How many do they have before that? They have the first record, Fly By Night, Crest of Steel, 2112, the live record that doesn't count, uh, Fairway to Kings, and Hemispheres. So this is really like their eighth studio record. So they've been around for a minute. But I feel like it's them. It's the first Rush record where they're leaving um, the world of... A Fred Word of Kings and Hemispheres in 2112, like the the concept record, one song per side album, like really over the top. It's still really over the top, but it's more, the songs are more condensed. And that's what I mean about how I feel like they, they this is when they really sort of figured it out. Um, and I feel like the musicianship is just on fire in this song. It's like, I don't even, this is when I really figured out that this is what I want to do with my life was was this very moment when this record came out and it was and it's it it's just the ultimate life-changing um uh musical moment for me in my in my life absolutely it's like when this is when there was no question whatsoever that this is this is it this is it for me so I found my calling in in one song and everything about the song I mean, yeah, the drums are, of course, Grace, definitely the biggest influence on me by far um, is Neil Peart. But the just the guitar and the bass in this um, is absolutely incredible. The whole breakdown, the whole entire guitar solo, it's just like, you know, I would listen to it and only listen to the guitars for a long time. And then I would listen to it again and only listen to the bass for a long time and listen to it again and only listen to the drums um, just over and over and over and over again. I I can I could talk all all night about this record. Do you remember sort of the the circumstances the 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 time that you would have first heard it? Um. Well, I was already a like huge, huge, massive Rush fan. It's not like this is the first Rush record I heard. The first Rush record I ever heard was Fly By Night, and I was really young, so. Um, but, and I, and I loved that. And, you know, to be honest, it's funny. This is such a long time ago that, um, I mean, I didn't have like the funds to just, first of all, I was very young, like really young. And I didn't have the funds to just run out and buy every single Rush record that I heard on the radio. Um, because I would have had to have asked my parents permission and all that. So it's, I relied on the radio. And, and at the time, I remember hearing the song Fly By Night on the radio, and I didn't know who it was. And then I heard, I think, like 2112 or something. This is, this is in Pittsburgh, um, which was a definitely big rock kind of town. And just hearing these songs on the radio, and it's like, ah, oh, here's that band again. Like, I wonder who that is. And finally, I found out that it's Rush. I think it was like a, a friend of mine's older brother had the record or something, and then I borrowed it. And and then I started to buy their their albums, but um, but then so Permanent Waves though when again when that came out, there's something special about this that just it's a it you know Hemispheres, A Farewell to Kings, Twenty One Twelve, all of those just peaked. It's like I had never heard music like this before, and I, I was obsessed with Rush. And then if you can imagine, you know what did I say? It was their eighth studio album. Like they're a band's eighth studio album. All of a sudden they like 
kick it up a notch even more where it's just like, oh man, this is like, like that was nothing. Like the stuff that's rush saying like all of our past records, that's like absolutely nothing. Like it, this is, this is what is really happening now. And it was just, I was just, it's just beyond impressionable. And like, it's, it's unbelievable. There's something really special about permanent ways. Cause it's like seconds before moving pictures and you can smell it. You can smell that they're ready and that this is, but I mean, I like permanent, permanent ways better because I don't know why, but it's, I, I just do. But, and I love moving pictures as well, but uh permanent waves is just like, it's the brilliant segue into moving pictures. Right. And you know, you, you get at something, well, that was an interesting time for a lot of reasons, I think. Um, and you know, you're right. They had all these uh, in the seventies, they had all these, they had a lot, you know, concept albums and sidelong suites and um, silk robes. Right. Right. And then, um, you know, they get to the the cusp of the eighties and they sort of change it up a little bit. And, you know, I mean, we were talking about, yes, yes is a very good example of one of those bands from the seventies that tried to sort of make that jump to the nineties. And all of a sudden, you know, they've got skinny ties and, you know, blazers on <laughs> and videos and you know it just didn't it just didn't work for for most of them but rush was like you know they found another gear right there at the start of the 70s it's like yeah uh 80s or right at the start of the 80s like 80s no problem we got this we'll we'll have skinny ties and it'll look right and we're gonna change up what we do and it's gonna work yeah it's true i think rush looked better with their 1980 clothes, especially Alex Lifeson, better than Yes did um, on the, what is it, nine, or one, what's the Owner of a Lonely Heart record? Um, one oh something, it's a numerical title. I want to say, say 90210. But I know, I, I always make that mistake, but I, and yeah. I almost just did. Um, <laughs> but... They looked ridiculous because they're wearing like glitter. They looked like they were trying to dress like Duran Duran and it just, it absolutely didn't work. But I mean, that's a huge record and it was really successful. And I mean, I, I guess I kind of like it, but at that point I had, I was not even listening to yes anymore, but I like the more psychedelic. Yes. But it's, it's kind of true that they, that they didn't look as rush somehow got away with that. They got away with murder. A lot of a lot of groups did not. It it didn't work. It didn't work for the Who, or when the Who tried to do that. But yeah, Rush, Alex Lifeson pulled it off. So I think that now we have to talk about uh, the man, um, the the uh, the lyric writer, the the drummer, Neil Peart. Um, important part of the band and it sounds like clearly an important part of uh you and and what you do absolutely i think going back to um what i said earlier is that i used to march in in drum corps and i marched in my high school marching band which was core style super competitive um you know really taking it seriously um humongous music program um, but it's all about precision, um, because you're playing, you know, it's like 10 people, the snare line is supposed to sound like one person, uh, 
or it's like 10 to 12, 8, 10, 12 people. Um, and I, Pert is so, like, he was just such a, a precise and deliberate drummer where there wasn't any um, wishy-washy, jazzy kind of exper- experimenting. Like, he knew exactly what he was doing, um, and it was very well thought out beforehand and, and just his amazing precision and, like I said, deliberate. That's the, the one most important Neil Peart word, I think. It's just deliberate. It's everything um, is, is he means it. Every single, there isn't any like a little wimpy fill. Like every fill is there for a, a very, very deliberate reason. And he's, it's, it has a purpose. Everything has a purpose. From the tiniest little subtle um, dynamic moments to the most bombastic part, everything has a purpose, a job. Um, and I, I was just fascinated by that because you can really hear it. Um, I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's compared to some, you know, drummers that are, you, you can tell that they're just completely jamming and exp- like, exper- which is fantastic. That's, that's an amazing thing. But I think as a, a very young, impressionable drummer who's was trying to find my own, voice and my own style i was trying to i was trying to create my own style my own personal style that i could be proud of and and run with and really um that was like the biggest thing in my life at that time and that sort of i just i really picked picked his the way that he's playing apart and that it just completely changes the way that i play and the way that i look and approach music I'm struck by the contrast because, you know, uh, Neil Peart, uh, esteemed musician by you and others and myself. Um, but, you know, sometimes he gets clowned a little bit for like having the massive drum kit that basically wraps around him. I guess maybe yeah. it wasn't always like that, but now it is. Yeah. And again, I'm struck with the contrast where, you know, uh, your thing is, I don't know if it's stripped down, but it's certainly not excessive. And right. Uh, how uh, is was it a matter of of just taking that deliberateness and applying it to a more limited thing or is it just that's him and and you're you well yeah i mean i i, I never wanted to, to to i i don't think there's anything wrong being being influenced by others but direct like copying someone i don't think is is very cool um and I don't really have that much respect for people that just ape like note for note. Um, so, but, um, and I think the stripped down thing is definitely very uh, battles. Um, but, you know, yeah, that's true. I, I was never, I was never like the gigantic drum set guy. In fact, I think it's really just, it's the combination of pert for all the examples that I just said about, you know, purpose being deliberate and then the power and the funkiness of of Bonham, I think, and it's combining those two, those two like theories, not just those two drummers. The the theories that each one of them put on the table, combining them and throwing a bunch of other little elements in there, and stirring up the soup and seeing seeing what it tastes like. You know, ages ago when I was sort of trying to figure out jazz, 
one of the things that really hit me was like listening to Elvin Jones and, you know, who's an amazing drummer, but you know, his style was very passionate and it sort of almost sounded like he was kind of thrashing around sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then I would listen to Max Roach where everything almost sounded like it was written out, you know, it's like he would, he would play a solo and everything would be perfect, which is not to say it wasn't passionate or anything else. It was just like, everything was right where it was supposed to be clinical. Yeah. Right. And sort of putting together in my head that those two things could, you know, be part of the same, you know, it was different styles and, you know, uh, sort of identifying people who went more to one side of the spectrum and more to the other side of the spectrum. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a drummer, but that was like a big thing for me to figure out, you know, back in the misty mists of time. Yeah. I think that, I think, Again, I mean, and this is just my opinion. It's my personal opinion. To me, it's more important to have your own style. And that's absolutely the most important thing. And I have, it's like, I, I appreciate people who I, you know, I hear something and I know it's that person because their style is just so strong. And it's hard to do that with drums, you know, because um, you have to really know what you're listening for, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, to me, it's just, it's all about style and, and I have more respect for style than chops any day. Um, yeah. Do you still keep up with, uh, I mean, I guess they're sort of done now or at least for the time being, but have you kept up with their music all the way through? No, 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 no. I stopped. Uh, I mean, I saw them, a couple of years ago, I, I believe they're completely broken up now. But um, I did I did manage to see them, I think, three years ago. It was fantastic. I saw them at Madison Square Garden, um, and it was it was just it was supposed. I think it was their last tour, so maybe that was like two years ago. Um, and they played songs they had never played before, and um, yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, I definitely s- lost interest around. Hold your fire, I think. I mean, I have the the other records, um, but I stopped. I was just involved in a completely other music at that point. Um, but I still, yeah. And also, they they became more and more. There's a moment when they kind of became. They just started becoming more and more and more and more commercial. Um, where where it, then it became too much for me. I mean, it was still fine. It was still a rush record, but. Um, I don't know. And also, I was just getting older. It wasn't just the boyhood fascination anymore. And, you know, I still am. I'll go on rush tangents, but it'll definitely be before a certain. It'll be like specific eras. Final song chosen by Stanier as being crucial to him was Arabian Nights by Susie and the Banshees.
my third song um, represents um, this kind of represents the song that opened the window to a totally different world um, this is right around where I was like alright yeah whatever Rush like <laughs> because at this point I mean we were talking about moving pictures and moving pictures had become it was I was just I forget how old I was but it was it was just like every single person in school had the record and there it was just they were they became too big and uh you know um they were the, that was they were probably the biggest band in the world for that moment for that year I think um but my third song Arabian Nights um this is the first record that I don't remember if I have the 45 of this because it was released as a single, I think, first. And then it's on the album Juju, um, which came out in 1981. And that's, I love that record. And for whatever reason, why, how, I think there was this, in high school, there was this kid from England. He was like an exchange student or something. And he had some records and he loaned them to me. And, and then I found this place the like the you know the new wave punk record store um and this is just or no in fact this a normal record store had this record for some weird reason um and yeah this is the this is the song that kind of just was this was the song that was like hey there's there's this whole other world of stuff going on just come with me and uh this this was the beginning of it all for me like um which is maybe a little weird um i guess everyone has like that one song where they're like huh like the misfits what's this uh but this is yeah this is the song that i was just like what the hell is this and it's awesome and it's the like the drumming is just killer on it they're from england the dude's have like bleach blonde hair and eyeliner and it's just like it it just seems so foreign to me in 1981 um you know i didn't see anything like this uh i thought it was punk i mean it to me it is kind of punk for sure um uh but yeah this this and it's it's funny because i was more into like Susie and the banshees and you know bow wow wow and Oh God, just on and on and on all this stuff before I really went off the deep end with hardcore and punk and stuff. Um, so this is like the pre when this song came out, it's like all the other like prog rock, the rush and nerd music. This is when I officially stopped being a nerd. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. Well, some would say you stopped being one kind of nerd and became another kind of nerd. <laughs> I know, of course, even even more of a nerd, ten times more. But yeah, this is when I thought I was like, "Screw this, man!" I'm, you know, this this is what I'm about now, and yeah. So, I think that um, you know, I mean, obviously they have a huge following, and I know that you know years ago, and I, I knew a lot of people who kind of 
you know, lived by the Bible of Susie and the Banshees. But I think now they're kind of not maybe spoken about as much as they should be, whether it's culturally or, or musically, you know, uh, people, I don't know that they're, I wouldn't say they're forgotten, but they're maybe not as much a part of the conversation as they might be. And I don't know whether that's just because of fashion or somehow along the way they got a, I don't know. I don't know what if they would have gotten a bad rap for. Do you know what I mean? It's it just seems like they don't get the, yeah. the kind of attention. I feel like um, the re- you know, I like this. Like I said, I like this song because for whatever reason, it was the first song that opened the portal that became like punk for me. So in a really weird way, I, I can't. I'm not even going to necessarily say this is the first punk song I ever heard. Of course not. But it's like the first record that I got that I was like. I felt like I was like, I kind of know what's going on now. And then it just exploded after that. But I do think that they're, they're, they're a weird band in the sense that, you know, they're, they're kind of a pop band, but they started out as, as, I mean, she's one of the original like punks period, like, like sex pistol era, like 76, whatever. Um, um, you know, they started, it's like, they're sort of a pop band, but they're also a rock band and they're definitely a punk band. The stuff she's singing about is pretty intense. And, um, and the musicians are, you, you know, you can tell that like Budgie is a self-taught. I mean, I, I think that's what I think. You can tell that he's like a self-taught drummer because his style is just insane. It's like the stuff I'd never heard. He does just. There's a couple of things that he does that he's known for that like really stand out. It's just like it's the it's the the simplest little thing, but no one else ever did it. It's the tiniest little, you know. It's like a professional skateboarder who you love because he does like the, the he does his own little twist on whatever trick, and it's just like it's amazing because no one ever, else had ever thought of that. Because to a certain extent, you know, rock drumming or like this kind of drumming it's you kind of have to you're constantly to really stick out you have to kind of reinvent the wheel it's like you're always going to be sort of sounding like everybody else because it's just you're just keeping time kind of but you know his his style is just killer it's uh i don't know um he's fantastic this this era too um john mcgia the 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 guitar player i think he played in magazine i think um but uh i mean my really good friend Dwayne dennison from the jesus lizard is like this guy has completely influenced me so it's like there are all these susan demanches are all these like splinter um i i feel like their inf- their, their influence is like splinters out of them i know people that um you know goth people were really into them and i hated goth um but I really like Susan Demanches. Now she's she even admits herself, like I'm not even I'm a terrible singer. But she's like I do one thing and one thing well, and it's kind of true. It's like she kind of screams, but it's like melodic screaming. But I feel like she wrote the book on that. It's a really powerful book. Um, she's not trying to be, you know, uh, I don't know, like it's like an opera singer or something. She's just like doing what she does well. It's it's she's kind of like Grace Slick. That's what I always liked about Grace Slick in like the Jefferson airplane where she's just like, I do one thing and one thing well, and that's it. And it's like, she has a super piercing, powerful voice and, you know, she just uses it really, really well. And I, you know, 
yeah, I guess, and also that there's heavy stylized, um, and it's also very singles oriented music. I feel like so the rest of the album is kind of weird, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, Susie the Banshees. Can you talk about one little thing that you noticed about Budgie that's weird that that you know blew your mind at the time? Or maybe he does, um, he does this weird little, I mean, this is super drum nerd, extreme drum nerd talk, but he does this weird thing where he hits his hi-hat with his left hand, like out of nowhere. He does really weird hi-hat work and his toms sound really cool. They're sounding huge. And he, that's kind of the first time I ever heard like the tribal kind of tribal drumming and like with like a, a um, he does the tambourine thing on the on the hi hat, which was really cool. Um, he's he's like an eerie sort of drummer. There's such a dark side to them too, which, yeah. Um, but yeah, his hi hat thing is really cool. The way his drum sounded, um, yeah, just small small little things, but really noticeable things. And in fact, so and to me, that's just really impressive because no one ever did that. I'd never heard that before. And now it's like the guy from Susie and the Banshees. It's just like, come on, that's amazing. So what age would this have been when, when this came along and did you, did you know, I mean, it sounds like you had, you know, what you said, an exchange student, um, you know, loaned you some records or gave you some records, but did you know other people at the time who were on this wavelength? Um, this would be 1981. So this would be, um, I was in the eighth grade. Yeah. Eighth grade, um, about to enter high school. And the funny thing is, is that, so this is 1981 and my sister's two years older than me. So she was already in high school and, and the, the, you know, we had moved from Pittsburgh to suburban Fort Lauderdale, Florida, because my father was teaching at another university. So, um, I grew up in a very small suburb, way west of uh, of Fort Lauderdale. Um, but so there, you know, there's the gigantic junior high school and then the really big high school, and they're both very close to each other. And you know, so there's they have a lot to do with each other. But anyway, um, I remember. So when I first heard this record, and I had just discovered this, is maybe at the end of my eighth grade year so right before i was entering high school and i remember that there were these there were like i think a couple skinheads there were some punk kids at my sister's high school and i was like ah this is gonna be great like i'm I'm, now i i I figured it out and like i'm gonna i'm gonna spend the whole summer i'm gonna get some more records i'm gonna get some clothes and blah blah blah, and then you know and then and of course i enter high school and they all graduated (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so yeah that was uh, <laughs> and then it was like cricket 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 like oh whoa and it was like the only punk in school for a year for yeah there was one year where it was just like uh, it was humiliating because I had to hang out with metalheads and uh, these like goth girls <laughs> <laughs>
This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. Look for and subscribe to all of WYPR's podcasts at wypr.org slash podcast central. For more information about Essential Tremors, go to essentialpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.